Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And look, I'm doing this introduction up the top to plug my comedy festival show, which starts a week from today. Well, when this comes out, a week from today, uh, March 27th, uh, the first preview of my show, Will Informed. The first two nights are cheap previews and... Uh, they will be the first time that I've ever done the show. So if you want to see some jokes that, uh, probably won't make the cut for the rest of the season, you want to see some jokes for the very first time, uh, you want to be in that audience, uh, where you find out what the show is at the exact same time that I find out what the show is, then please come along and say, we'll inform, but I am doing the entire month at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So if you're not the sort of person who wants to see the jokes when they're new, you know, come along in the second or you know, the third week. It's like a month of shows. Rosie's just staring at me like, Rosie said to me, I'll, I'll give you a little background. I'm in the uh, my day job and uh, the wonderful Rosie Walton is uh, across the desk from me helping me record this introduction. And uh, before I started, she said, you're not allowed to refer to your show as a steaming pile of shit um, this week in the introduction. So I am going to take your advice, Rosie, and I'm not going to refer to my show as a steaming pile of shit. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to last week's episode, you can hear my intro where I refer to my show as a steaming pile of shit. I've, I've thought about it since. Um, I, I think it might've actually been a flaming pile of shit, maybe even too, actually. I don't think it was steaming. I think it might've been a flaming pile of shit. The shit might've been on fire last week. Anyway, the point is that's not a very good plug for uh, my comedy festival show. So uh, please come and see my comedy f- uh, comedy festival show, Will Informed. Uh, another man who was doing the comedy festival is today's guest, Dill, and you're going to love this. If, you, if you're not familiar with Dill, uh, then strap yourself in. You're going to have a really good time with this podcast. It's really a fantastic chat. He's one of the best young comedians on the scene, uh, winner of the Best New Talent of the Logies, of course. Uh, last year, you might know his work from Utopia and uh, Peter Hellier's show Cram. Uh, you might know him from the Little Dum Dum Club, uh, his own podcast, Fitbet, uh, where he's lost an incredible amount of weight and his new show, Cheat Days, is all about uh, the amazing amount of weight that he's lost and uh, the process that he went on doing that as well. But this is a really brilliant chat with Dill and I uh, learn a lot from it as well, sitting down with him and uh, having a really good uh, time having a conversation about a whole heap of different things. Afterwards, we went to get a coffee and uh, I thought I'd lost my wallet. Uh, uh, well, I thought I'd lost my bag that had my wallet and my show in it, which uh, I had not. But uh, basically, it just meant that uh, I got Dill to buy me a cup of coffee. So I apologize to Dill. Please go and see his show. He's a very generous man. He bought me a cup of coffee because I... Uh, in what felt like a power move, to be honest, pretended that I didn't have my wallet. I didn't have my wallet, but it felt for a second like, anyway, you guys don't need to know this. I am terrible at introductions. I probably shouldn't just do it. Anyway, come and see my show. Enjoy this podcast. I'm done. All right. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and, uh, well, this is how the podcast starts. It's pretty simple. I ask my guests who they are. Who are you? Uh, well, uh, at this point in time, I am uh, Sri Lankan-born Australian stand-up comedian Dil Rukjai Singer. I thought about it. I was trying to think, if you ever asked me that question, what would I say? And that was always going to be my answer, except for the starting pit, which is at this point in time. Because in the last two weeks, I've realized I've been reading a lot about identity and how much our sense of identity can kind of link to our sense of happiness as well. Because as soon as the identity is threatened, then everything feels like it's scary. So by giving myself that outgoing at this point in time, this is where things are at. It gives me a little bit more flexibility as to who I think I am. 
Tell me more about that. That's that's really fascinating to me. So explain that idea more. I was trying to think of why bombing hurts me so much, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Because I think I realized I'd put so much effort and energy into fantasizing what it would have been to become a stand-up comedian, since, you know, from a very young age or whatever. And then once I got to do it, I'd really it was more than ever, anything that I'd have expected it to be, and it was so exciting. And I just held on to that idea so strongly. That as soon as the laugh stopped, it was like a threat to my sense of self. Like I started failing in that moment. Like sure, I can walk off and shake it off and do another gig and get that back. But I realized it was really starting to undo me because I put so much like value and attachment to this idea of being a person who is funny. So that when the laugh stops, you're a failure. So that's something I relate to quite a lot. And probably as we record this two and a half weeks out from the comedy festival, we were having an off-air discussion that we won't go into, but Mm. about that I'm finding this year particularly difficult for a range of reasons. And and what has started drifting back into my thoughts is that idea of how much I connect my achievement and success uh, in putting together a good show and doing a good show yearly and making sure that show is... My aim is that the new show will always be better than the old show. Right. And now that the doubts are creeping into my mind about my capacity to pull that off, I have realized also that those doubts about my identity, how I see myself and how others see me, have started to creep in as well. And suddenly, not only do you have the the voices that are telling you that the joke isn't right or you've forgotten how to be funny or the the things not coming together, but you also have all these other voices of like, you know, and no one's going to like you or respect you and you won't like yourself and what are you without this and all these sort of voices. Exactly, yeah. So it's interesting because I don't necessarily think that those voices feel like they are there for me a lot, but this is a good time to talk about this because right now I'm hearing them a lot. So... Uh, answer me this first, just so I can get a bit of a baseline. You feel bad when you bomb. Do you feel great when you do well? Yes, absolutely. It's like I've, I am, because I put so much effort into thinking that this is a cool thing to do. Um, because like standups for me were my rock stars. Do you know what I mean? It was, uh, first Eddie Murphy's, you know, Raw and Delirious when I was like 11. Then it was, I think, Chris Rock, Eddie Izzard. And then I came to Australia. And then it was like, you know, you and Husey and things like that. So for me, always I looked up to... <laughs> and that does sound like a hilarious. Like, you know, you were talking about all the all-time greats. And then, you know, Australia, it's like Will and Husey. <laughs> <laughs> but it is though. Like, like uh, it, it, was, it was the glass houses where my first introduction yeah. into Australian stand-up comedy. So I moved around here when I was 2004, so 19. And, um, and I didn't go to the comedy festival the first few years. And I think in... Um, I started watching The Glass House in 2005 because that's when I bought a TV. So that first year, there was no TV. <laughs> you were a hipster before your time, yeah, deal. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to find streaming services where it didn't exist. But then I uh, started watching And the, my first ever live stand-up comedy gig was for Hughes' show. And then immediately after, it was yours. And I uh, remember that it was just like this like amazing little double thing for me. To, I think I actually recently found the original ticket which was in my email because I think it was emailed to me. So I actually had the physical date. Weirdly, I think it was March, like early March or something like that back then. But anyway, but for me, that idea of being a stand-up was such a cool, unachievable thing for those years. Those entire time, I was like, that is some too far foreign world for me. I'll just enjoy it from afar. But I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do it one day? And so then now that I get to do it, it is this, inc- I, like I can't quite explain how exciting it feels that I get to perform on a nightly basis, even if it's at an open mic gig. The fact that someone is willing to make time for me to show up and trial new material to me is unbelievable. So for me, that joy genuinely 
exists when the laughs are there. And when it doesn't happen, it was hurting. But I can walk it off. I can like easily get off stage and then like, oh, that's fine. I can get back on stage. But in that moment, I was like, why does it hurt me so much to bomb? Because I didn't want it to be a reason for me to not try new things. Because that fear of failure can stop me from actually pushing myself forward and trying to discover new things about me on stage. So that's when I started to think about, oh, this is probably to do with because I hold this in such high regard that as soon as the laugh stops, then you don't feel like you're succeeding. So this is something I've been talking about with my therapist recently, Mm. actually, to be honest, which is because I feel like I'm at a spot in my life and this is more generally than just my stand-up, but where I still feel it terribly if things don't go well, Mm. but I'm not getting the the other half of it right like the best i feel after a gig ever now is okay good we got away with that right you know next time yeah so i'm getting all the negative side of it like yeah. i still if things don't go well or if i'm struggling to put things together i still am carrying all that but i'm not getting that sort of payoff of like that you know i just right. did a sellout show at the sydney opera house and yeah and that's when i really identified it i did two shows they were both sold out at the opera house at and my favorite house. show i'd ever done and I remember just walking off stage and thinking, okay, well, that's done. What's next? What's next? And not, and, but <laughs> not in a brutal. way, yeah, but in a way that like was actually, I was like, oh, hang on. I'm not, you know, we talk about mindfulness and, yeah. you know, people talk about, you know, coloring in a you yeah. know, mindfulness coloring book or chewing your food 20 times. But for <laughs> me, like I'm getting to do these amazing things and not really getting the, the chewing them 20 so, times. Yeah. And enjoying the taste right. of it. Yeah. For me, I, I realized um, that I, I, and this is going to sound like I'm being talking bullshit, but I genuinely felt like I peaked career-wise in November 2017, and that was oh, when. Oh no, no, we all agree. With that. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I'm, Damn glad, it, I'm glad that, that you glad you finally it. admitted it to yourself because we've been talking about it behind you back. <laughs> we're glad you got the Logie because we were like, well, that is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was such a it, what, what happened in that month was my parents were in town. For who live, my parents who live in Sri Lanka were in town, and um, they got to see a whole bunch of things that I never thought I'd get to show them. Which is, it just coincided with a bunch of television shows that I'd been doing had been on air at the same time that they were in town. So they were like, I'd come home and Mum's got the TV on to ABC in case or, or Channel Ten in case, like an ad for Cram or Utopia shows up. And Dad's meanwhile coming to watch like like he came. He was in like there was one week where he came like five times or something like to watch me. And the final night of them watching comedy was me headline in the comics lounge um in front of like 400 people and that's the very venue that i first did my first ever gig and how for some reason all of that put together this the first time i ever performed there was 20 people in the crowd and i bombed really hard and then you fast forward um you know six seven years later i'm headlining and my mom and dad are in the crowd and seeing their face after that show was when i hit me oh this is what i've been chasing like i've been chasing their approval they've given it to me they've never not made me feel like i can do this and they've always encouraged me but i never felt it until i genuinely saw their. in fact it's my little wallpaper on my phone is the two of them smiling at the bottom they're posing in front of the comics lounge (laughs) the comics lounge background right so it makes me that's my that's my mental peak so from that moment what happened first was a genuine crisis. Like I actually was in probably the darkest place I've ever been. They left. They went back to Sri Lanka. I'm in my one bedroom apartment and a whole bunch of things just started crumpling down on me. I hadn't gone and seen my therapist for a while. I wasn't doing my meditation. And this time I was not even exercising, which I've started doing more recently. And a lot of bad habits started creeping in terms of not taking care of myself. 
And I remember finding there was a moment when I realized I hadn't left the apartment for over 24 hours. And there was a moment where I was taping the blinds off my window just so that the sunlight wasn't coming in and waking me up at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning because I was like, I need to sleep until 12. And I went, oh, I think I might be in trouble here. Mm. And so that made me start to really look at what's going on. Like if, if you felt from that massive high, what's happening here like a week later? And that's when it hit me. I was like, okay, I can't put my sense of self-worth into this business, which I do love, but I don't know whether it necessarily has that same love for me in return always. There might be in the moment. Right now, things are really cool, but I don't know how long that's going to last. So I can't give, give it that much uh, love and respect that I do. I still love and respect it, but not to the extent that I was giving it. And that sense of peaking made me look at what my life would be if I had to walk away. And I genuinely thought about at this point when everything was spiraling out for me that, look, you know what? I can still go back to Sri Lanka. I can still, you know, I've got some savings. That'll go a long way with the rupee back home. <laughs> and you know what? My, and I realized, wow, my plan B is better than most people's plan A. Like, it's so incredible that I get to go back to Sri Lanka and stay with my mom and dad and maybe get a job in, you know, back in accounting or whatever it is. If that's my plan B, Jesus, fuck, I'm lucky. Like, how good is that if this is your plan B? And that started to make me go, you know what? If I'm going to do another continuing comedy, this is all bonus. Everything from now onwards is just extra. It's like the closest description I can give is um, Geelong versus Port Adelaide 2007 grand final, AFL grand final, where they won the game, what, first quarter? But they didn't take the foot off the pedal. They still kept kicking goals, but they knew they had it and they just enjoyed it. So for me, these are these last three quarters of that AFL grand final. Uh, that's amazing to me because I, I get that idea of like thinking about what does your life look like without this? And yeah. I think that's actually really important. I think it's a really good thing. Like this industry in particular, mm. you know, comedy and particularly live comedy, you know, Rich Hall always used to say it's a joke by joke job application yeah. and, and you can ride the highs and lows of it. And it is a thing that like, there are some occupations where, you know, you earn enough credits yeah. and you're good at what you do. Whereas like, you know you can get bad at being a stand-up very, very quickly. Yeah, you know? in the same gig. <laughs> yeah. I've had, I had, I remember like one of my worst ever bombs was, I remember the date, September 21st, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> You're September 11th. Yeah. <laughs> Deal always celebrate, commemorates 10 days Lest after. Let's forget yeah. <laughs> that, that bomb. But it was, I ruined the date because it was exactly three years after my first ever gig. Back at the Comics Lounge, I was doing support act for Fiona Lachlan, someone I looked up to and I couldn't believe it. It was the first time I was getting paid to do a gig at the Comics Lounge. And I used to, I used to always write out my list of, um, like, the, the set list. And that was the first day that I just wrote, ah, just have fun, cunt. I just said that. And I went out with this energy that I've never had before where it was just pure joy. Like a 20-minute set. Joel Creasy was emceeing. That's how long ago this was where he was still an MC for Fiona. And it was this incredible night. And the first seven minutes was the strongest I'd ever had a gig go. Well, I just couldn't believe how good I was. And then I got cocky. And I was like, ah, oh, these guys are eating the palm out of the palm of your hands. You've got 30 more, 13 more minutes to go. Just do something new. And I did a new bit specifically around growing up in a Muslim family. And I hadn't really understood the weight of saying growing up in a Muslim family was going to have at the <laughs> comics lounge. <laughs> I was like, wow, the punchlines really need to be good if this is the topic I'm going to bring up, right? And I lost the back row, then the second back row, and then just little by little. And the trickle effect of just hearing 400 people not even, not even be quiet, but just kind of hate me for ruining their night. That, that gig, 
happened on a Saturday night and I was still working as an accountant and I called in sick on Monday because I couldn't get out of bed on Monday because that bomb hurt so much for many years later. So exactly as you say, this industry, again, it's just everything's joke by joke and it can drive you insane if you don't be careful about it. And it's voracious. What does like that mean? It, well, as in that it, it, the capacity for people to want your creativity is never ending. Right. Like, you know, it is a, it is a furnace. You know, yeah. do this. Come and perform at that. Be on the radio. Be on the television. Like, every step of being successful in this means yeah. that, you know, you are being churned for more and more, you know, of you. Yeah. Like, particularly for us as stand-ups who are putting ourselves out there as the entertainer. Right, right. So much of you. So I think it's very healthy what you're saying to you know, not be riding the highs and lows of it. But mm. I think it's also important to, you know, find that balance uh, where you can still appreciate the joy of the good stuff. Yeah. And sort of, you know what? Like I say to when when young comedians ask me for advice online, you know, often I'll, I'll take some time and give some advice, but there's only so much advice you can give. The best advice mm. you can give to people is here's how you start. Like here's how you get your first right. five minutes and you find it. But up, other than that, you're going to learn a lot of it by – like, just doing it. Like and most like, of the things that I could say to you right now, you won't really get until it happens. Yeah. But the one thing I would say to most of them is, I regret not understanding how good bombing is for you right. early on. Right. Right? But it's still got to hurt. You can't get used to bombing or be fine with bombing. Mm. Bombing's still got to hurt a bit because the process of bombing is that it makes you better because it hurts. 100%. 100%. And I, I've been reading something about this, the idea that that pain is good but suffering is not. So you can take the pain off the bomb and use that as fuel to drive you towards that creativity, to, to be better, to know that you did something wrong. Feel it. Don't be arrogant enough to go, nah, who cares about the crowd? I don't care what they think. I'm, I know I'm awesome. Like, that's not what you want. But what comes after is the suffering where you're wallowing in that pain. That is not needed. You can take the lesson. Like, I never understood that phrase, take the lesson, but forget the experience until I bombed. Because mm. <laughs> that made perfect sense. Because I do want to remember that saying these series of words in that tone fucked up and I can't do that again or I need to recalibrate. But I don't want to feel that hurt over and over again. Like, so now what happens to so me? Say that again. Take, take the take lesson. The, take the lesson, forget the experience. I love that. Right. It's actually what I needed to hear right now. Anyway, this podcast is over. <laughs> I'm going home to do some writing. Well, just give me a Medicare <laughs> fact, card and I'll, I'll give you the rebate. Fact, here's yeah. the $150 I was going to give to my therapist. You've done a much <laughs> better Mine's job Mine's gone than to 160 now. I'm like, well, hang on. It's like just because just now I'm hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. I, for me, therapy has been a game changer. If there's anything I could ever pass on to someone is that idea that there's just because things aren't as bad as they could be or they are for your friends doesn't mean that it's worth not worth you being able to try and tap into it as well if you have the financial means we're lucky that we're in a in a, in a country that does have subsidized you know sessions at least try and take advantage of it don't wait for something to come unstuck before you you feel like you should try and look into it so i made that mistake recently like i hadn't been back to therapy for ages right and i i was like really stuck in my life in a way where externally everything was going really well yes and in my real life that wasn't the case at all mm. and so the very much like someone who has like a brilliant you know instagram you know thing of them always oh, yeah. you know sitting by a pool or doing something fabulous but in real life that's not what their life is like at all my career was a bit like that mm. my career was going very well but my yeah kind of off career life was in in turmoil and it was very hard for me and it took an actual, uh, like a, for me to, it, it took something really bad happening for me to go, oh shit, I've got to go back and find someone that I can make the time, right. make the space and actually, 
you know, deal with this. What was it that uh, took, well, you don't have to tell me specifically, but do you remember why it was that you went to therapy in the first place? Uh, yes, I will, I will answer that, but I did have a question just then for you. Did you find that with that the, the sense of where your career is at, where everyone can see, do you feel a sense of, I don't know if the word is guilt, but a certain level of guilt to admit that things are hard? Because on paper, everything is so good. You feel bad to say things suck at the moment because if you look externally, there's this career that's going well, you know, financially probably secure. Like, you know what I mean? Those things that we perceive, you feel bad to then give in to that idea that I don't feel good right now. Because oh. you're like, I should feel good. Look at this. 100%. That was, that was part of the problem. The right. problem was that I wasn't sharing any of it with anyone. Right. Because I felt like, who am I to complain yeah. about anything? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, my life externally, yeah. I couldn't think of anybody I could ring to complain to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like, who gets this? Yeah, who who can fully understand where I'm at? But it is those exactly the very thing that is dangerous for someone, I suppose, in your position, which is what probably I've heard Seth Myers talk about this. um, About the more successful you are on paper, the more uh, you're likely to be having these uh, difficulty opening up because you feel guilty. So, like the Robin Williams, Jim Carrey talks about himself being. Essentially, the truest example that he can think of of achieving everything they ever wanted and then more and still feeling unhappy and going, well, something must be wrong, but not being able to articulate that because, well, why are you complaining? Because you literally got everything you wanted. And that is something that I've really started to think about. God, you know, we've really – the metrics that we use to to measure success, I've started to realize are quite wrong. Not that they're flawed. They're flawed. Not that they're wrong. They're flawed. They're not complete. It's the same way I look at Wayne scales now because I'm trying to be healthier. And I go, it's an indication, but it's not the absolute measure of success or failure of where I'm at physically. So why am I giving myself the same thing with bank balances and, you know, who am I? Am I headlining or doing support or whatever it is? You know, there's there's elements to it that are giving you a right idea, but it's not the full picture. So I find that quite, yeah, I mean. I love that. So how how much of the, no, no, no. Well, yeah, to, to like, when did you first go to therapy and mm. what was it that you felt like, you know, it you it was going to give you that, you know, talking to your friends couldn't give you or right. talking about things on stage or on a podcast or, you know, performing or these sort of things. Like what, what was that sort of relationship? What was that conversation? Yeah. What, what do, were you not getting in the rest of your life that it started to fill in your life? Right. So for me, it was the hundred percent comes back to drinking. So I was... A uh, big drinker was something that really serviced me well in my 20s. But then towards the uh, latter part, so 2016, I was really getting drunk and gross and really messy and just a genuine embarrassment. And what was essentially for years considered cute and larrikin and just, oh, look at this Sri Lankan guy who's because I never drank until I came to Australia. And it was just so funny for my mates to have a guy who never drank before who turned out to be a fucking champion at drinking. Like, I've, um, I don't know if I told this story on a podcast before, but my first week of Australia was, um, I was literally walking around like I was at Melbourne Uni uh, and uh, I had like a backpack with a bum bag because mum told me to keep the passport and everything in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I literally had a literal map of Melbourne in there as well because there's no phones with maps back then and I just didn't want to get lost. <laughs> and, and, and then we go on this um uh, we go to the, the the uni has a, a like a you know gathering and they're like oh we're going on a cultural tour and turns out that was code word for pub crawl which i didn't know and so i joined the Look, culture we don't have much of a culture here it is <laughs> 
drink this. Because they weren't allowed. The union was a banned pub crawl. So I said, we're doing a cultural tour of Melbourne locations at oh, all right. different pubs or whatever, uh-huh. right? That was how they got across the line. But I didn't know that. And I would go and start, you know, uh, trying to talk to people. And I remember very specifically these two girls that I was talking to. They were very nice. But then when we got to the bar, it was really packed. They're like, oh, we're going to go to the toilet. Uh, we'll come back and, you know, grab you. And they never came back. Right. <laughs> so I'm there by myself <laughs> with a backpack and a, and a, and a bum bag. <laughs> waiting <laughs> and so but then i thought come on man like you know you're in a new country let's just and i just started talking to the two blokes in front of me i was like hey how are you i'm dill dill rook and uh it was quite funny because my name went from dill rook to dill rock and then that became dildo by the end right. of the fifth pub like it just kept changing <laughs> <laughs> and and um they were like well let's just get a pint and we got a pint each and then because the line was really long as soon as we got to the drinks the the pub crawl started going and the bloke goes i'll oh, just skull it and I had no idea what the fuck that meant. He goes, just drink it as quickly as you can. And I knocked it back in like four seconds or something. How big were you at this stage? Uh, Weight-wise? Yeah. Um, I was probably like, I don't know, like 105 kilos or about. So I'm about you know, what, 5'11". So, yeah, okay. So I'm about 30 kilos heavier than what I should be or so. Or about 25 or whatever. Um, but you're like, so I'm a big in, guy. I'm yeah, big I'm guy. more yeah, setting the picture for the people yes. who may or may not know yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ch- your capacity to like skull... Uh, you know, a pint of beer in four seconds, despite the fact that you hadn't drunk before. Right, right. You were, you know. Yeah, I used to drink water yeah. like that. That's <laughs> water and Fanta. I used to knock it back. So, so that's why that came. <laughs> so I knocked it back, and this guy was so impressed. These two strangers, he gave me his pint to watch me do it again. Yeah. And then we go to the next pub, and he's like showcasing me, going, "Look at this guy drinking," you know. And all of a sudden, so I went from not knowing anyone to this guy who's just able to skull points, mm. like literal strangers. A week later, I was at another party and this guy comes, are you the Sri Lankan bloke that can skull, can you skull this jug for me? <laughs> and so I finished the jug in like 12 seconds. And uh, funnily enough, the two girls that left me, one of the, I met them the next day at a different party thing. And they were like, oh, sorry, we couldn't find you, you know, uh, genuine mistake, sorry. And then one of the girls ended up becoming my girlfriend years later. And then at my 21st kind of speech, she admitted that, no, they saw me, but they ignored me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they came back around once they heard you could skull beers in four seconds. (laughs) That's how much we value alcohol in this country. Like Bob Hawke, you know, he's uh, he's heralded as a hero because of his ability to skull. Well, that, but it it strikes me Mm. that we're talking about the very thing we were talking about before, which Mm. is linking your identity to... You know, you were you, you had gone from you know this guy that like a couple of girls you know yeah walked, ignored ignored yeah. to finding this thing party boy on you're campus, in you're yeah. in a new country you found a thing that like people know who you are now yeah. and they know who you are for a positive way and you're linking being this heavy drinker with yeah. the positivity that people feel towards you because now all the cool guys on camp, like this the common student society who were running these parties they the the, the the heads of those guys, the leaders, were challenging me to try and beat me, but I was taking them all down. Like, you know, in boat races and stuff, I was like one versus four of them. Like, I was still like, so all of a sudden, this completely unknown Sri Lankan guy who no one knew about, now everyone. And I re- still remember the three blokes who were really rude to me before that weekend and the ones who would try to, like, suck up to me to get into this nightclub that I was now part of the running committee. And what makes me really laugh, uh, first of all, just to finish up the story about that day of the sculling, Ended up going to one of the bloke's places during the after because he wanted to change before we go clubbing or whatever. We steal a bottle of his dad's champagne. And I didn't know the difference between beer and champagne, that there was a potency difference. So I kept sculling the champagne thinking I'm sort of some sort of superhero. And I black out. I have no memory of where we've gone from his house to suddenly we're somewhere in Carlton. And he's like, man, we got to drop you off. We don't like, you know, I'm a mess now. And he, I mean, still with, you know, like, 
in the backpack and all that. And he goes, do you know, where, where do you live? I'm like, I actually don't know. <laughs> I genuinely don't know what my address is. And then I remembered I still had the lease agreement in my, in my, in my bum bag. <laughs> so we pulled Your out the lease. right. <laughs> yes. We pulled out the lease agreement. I'm like, okay, we'll call Ligon Street. Right, drop me off there. So um, that particular commerce, I always laugh because I ended up then becoming, uh, joining the commerce committee. Then from there, I became the president of the Commerce Student Society. And I never verified this, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only international student to ever do that. And because Melbourne Uni was going through this crazy shift from having like 140 degrees that they were offering or something, or they're now whittling it down to seven core degrees and all this big overhaul that they've had. And I had to sit on those committees. And every time I sat on those committees, I kept thinking, fuck, I'm only here because I can scull a jug in 11 seconds. (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with this country? But it genuinely starts with booze and all. And so from there, the job I got working at KPMG all starts with that one week of being a pisshead. Even once I come to KPMG, mm. I'm the one who's allocated all the, you know, starting the parties and, you know, Friday, where are we going, Dale? Like that sense of identity to being the party guy was so strongly. And it serviced me well. Like I said, it brought me out of my comfort zone. Um, I remember once I getting called into the partner's office at KPMG because they said, because uh, we had timesheets, you got to log in what work you're doing. And uh, apparently, you're not meant to log in for 14 hours a week for t- footy tipping competitions. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but they knew that's what I was good at. And so yeah. when they fired me, even they literally said, we wanted to keep you around because you're a positive attitude on the, the team, but you're just doing something you're not suited for. So this idea of uh, being the pisshead, Larrikin was so like, did me well that all of a sudden when it started to undo me, it was a real identity crisis. So even the idea of not being a drinker was me genuinely asking, well, who I am, who am I in Australia then if I'm not the pisshead? Because all my mates know me as the pisshead. Everyone who likes me likes me because of the the fun, crazy things that I used to do. And even my stand-up, so many of my strongest bits revolved around the dumb drunk shit that I got up to. And I was like, well, does that mean I lose material? The same thing with fat jokes. You know what I mean? Like I, I'd never let go of this idea of if I get thin, well, I don't have material. How do I navigate that? All that started to really scare me. So that's when I thought, look, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to start to get a control on my drinking, I need some extra help. Like yeah. I, I knew that. I, well, I mean, that's too, because I want to hear all about this, mm. but I also want to acknowledge how confronting that must have been because as you tell that story and, you know, and I know like in the comedy scene, it would have been incredibly helpful, you know, the late nights and the bonding, oh, yeah. the bonding with the other comedians and the yeah, integration into the social circle that mm. would not probably have happened mm. if you were going home straight after gigs and right. you know, doing these sort of things. Right. You know, a lot of the friendships that you make, a lot of the networking you do, a lot of the gigs that come out of that, you know, 100%. um, came out of, you know, you being a drinker and staying up late at night and mm. and you get to this level of success and drinking's been such a huge part of it right. that you think, well what if I if I pull out this entire pillar, does everything that has come with it Right. Like how much of this is because of the drinking? Yes, how much exactly. of this is despite of the drinking? Right. How much of this is but it's integrally tied up in what you're doing. So it must be incredibly confronting to have to like, well, now I just wanted to acknowledge yeah, to me that it doesn't seem like a very light thing. It seems like a very major thing. Huge because yeah. of how big it was part of it. Even back then when I went back to Sri Lanka with it as well, it's like it became 
what I was known for amongst the family things. Like I'd land in Colombo, mom and dad would pick me up, I'd get into a sarong and then drink a bottle of scotch every two days. It was a new bottle. And that, and you know, even though my mom's a Muslim who doesn't drink, she knows to keep the ice and the chases all ready mm. to go because Adil loves a drink, right? And it became this cute thing that I would just get maggot and we'd sing karaoke. And it just was such a big part of who I was. I think the hardest part was accepting that I am not a good drinker. Like, because so much of what I thought was cool about me, quote unquote, was about how well I can handle my booze. And then turns out I can't was a really difficult thing to accept. And it was not that I, I had a high tolerance. It's just that I could, I, I described it as I lost my handbrake. I just did not know how to pull the handbrake after like, it was as I spoke to Limo about this and he said it, it, he gets it because it's like, you've never had less than four. It's, it's never between four and 10 drinks. It's always less than four or 10 plus. There's no middle ground with me. And having to accept that was really tough. But also it was like when I, I think I just quit, I went full time with comedy and there was no reason for me to wake up in the morning until like 8 p.m. There was next, and all the gigs, the places that I was performing at, it became, oh, Dill's here. You know what I mean? Like, and I would some, it was the dream because some venues would give me. You grub. were like Norm from Cheers. 100%. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone in the bar was like, Dill. But the dream was that even if I was not on, I'd still get free grog. Yeah. And then some places would be like, oh, do you want some travelers? Yes, I'll take travelers. Why? Mm. I'm just going back to my apartment and <laughs> drink by myself. But all of it started to really. And then just the gross behavior was that the, the series was like, initially it was like you wake up in the morning with regret of like, oh, fuck, I can't believe I did or said that. The next the other version is like they tell you and you're like, oh, fuck, that's right. I did do that. The third version, which is you don't even remember them saying you did that was the scariest part. And that used to happen maybe once a year. And all of a sudden it was happening once a month, once a week. And I was like, fuck, I can't, I, I'm losing control here. So I needed um, external help. And the to answer that other question, which is why a therapist could, what a therapist could give me that my friends couldn't, I've always been good at being introspective and being able to kind of bring that because my with stand up as well, like I've done, I think this is my sixth show, and there's not a single joke that doesn't involve me <laughs> because it's all about what I'm going through and what's happening in my life. So I've been good at introspective, but I some there's only limits to what you can do with that information. You might be able to, so what I, the way it happens with my therapist, I'll bring the information to her and I'll say, hey, do you reckon that this thing that I did when I was 10 is similar to what happened when I was 18 and now I do it again? Why am I doing that and how do I stop it? And so rather than having to dig in, so I go and go and do a lot of homework and I bring it to the table because I'm able to do that part of it. But the next step in trying to find those links and why they happen, that's where she comes in. And the difference between her and like my brother and I are really close. He's my best mate in the world and we share quite a lot. But I never realized that as much as I share so much honesty with him, everything I say to him still is in the prism of him as someone whose respect I don't want to lose. Even though I know I have it no matter what happens or his love, I have to filter certain things as I say to him, especially if it's about him specifically. I'm worried about hurting his feelings or whatever. But with my therapist, I don't have that. She is completely like a random person whose sole interest is to try and get me to feel better. So being ha knowing that I can share some stuff that I never thought that I could share with my brother or, what, or my father or whatever and just be able to get that out knowing that she's not judging me. All she's there to do is to try and use that info to help me navigate the rest of the week. And are you able to be – because this is interesting to me and often, you know, the questions I'm asking yeah. are more, you know, about me than <laughs> yeah, they are about you, Jill. Yeah. But um, are you able to be fully honest with her? Because what I've found myself questioning of late is – my capacity to be fully honest with anybody. Right. Like, you know, to be, you know, that 
you know, what I really want to do is talk about, you know, why, why did I do this thing that I can't explain? Like, you know, right. all, there's a lot of yeah things you do in your life where you can go, well, I know why I did that. Right. Like, you know what? Yeah. Like I, in my head, I made a choice and maybe I made a bad choice, yeah. but I remember making the choice. I remember why I made the choice. I remember what mood I was in that made me think that, you know, eating those, you know, chips at two yeah. o'clock in the yeah, morning yeah, yeah, was yeah. a good idea. But then there's those other things in your life, those ones where you're like, I, be- I behaved in this way and I can't really explain why I behaved in this mm. way. And they're the ones that you want to talk to your therapist about. But mm. I still find myself sometimes even holding those things things back. Are you a person mm. who can be fully honest with – would you tell your therapist anything about your life? Uh, I would say 90%, 95%. There's about 5% left that I'm still waiting to pick my moment <laughs> because, you know, it's like <laughs> – I was like – because. Because there are things that I know certain uh, sections of my life, like in my early years, when I try to talk about it, I'm not 34-year-old Dilruk who is a little bit more introspective and comfortable with who he is. I regress to that teenager who is scared and he just wants, you know, you know, a, a connection with his dad or whatever it is. It just regresses into that version and it's hard for me to get that out. So that's where my dishonesty or like lack of sort of withholding of certain things comes in. But... Otherwise, I still find myself quite good with being as honest as I can with her purely because as painful as that process is of being honest, even showing ugly sides of you that it's hard to verbalize, as painful that is, as that is, I know that the pain of holding on to it is much worse in the future. So it's like, for me, it's a pain management thing. The pain of, same with diet and exercise, I realized the pain of doing the activity needs to be not as bad as the pain of not doing it. And for me, the pain of not doing it initially used to be worrying about diabetes for my, because both my parents have diabetes, both my parents have had, uh, you know, bypass surgeries. That was too far in the future. That's not going to happen to me. That's, that's way far. But then I started doing this bet with my friend and it became a more immediate response of, oh, I can't lose the bet. So I have to do this now. But then once the bet was won, I lost my motivation. So then I was like, well, this is not sustainable. I need to find the pain of doing why I not doing it is bad for me. So I've managed to find the pain to, I found a way to use pain as a positive where if I want to uh, stay healthy, uh, it's because I like the fact that I can run better. I'd like the fact that I can, you know, do more things with my life. Like I went hiking in Scottish Highlands after Edinburgh, which I wouldn't have been able to done a year ago. So I'm like, oh, that's my motivation to avoid the pain of missing out on those opportunities. With therapy, as painful as it is to admit this to her, I don't want to spend the rest of the week worrying like having that bottled in my head because that pain is much worse than this immediate it's like the band-aid ripping off thing just being able to go here it is vomit and then i've also noticed there's that huge catharsis of because of going back to this sense of identity that this is who i am and i like to think of myself as a good person but saying these words in a row means that i'm not a good person anymore in this moment and then having someone who is going, no, you're still fine. I'm still happy to help you. It's like, oh, really? Because I thought I'm a piece of shit that doesn't deserve anyone's love or respect. And she's like, no, no, we're fine. We're still, we're still going to try and make you better. And I will, I will thank you for that. And that, that, that brief temporary pain is worth the reward afterwards. And I try and remember that. Again, a lot of the, what I'm saying is in theory. <laughs> and as long as I do it more often than not, like sometimes I think, Everything that I try to do, I don't get to do it 100% of the time. Like, you know, uh, I'll always fuck up here and there and maybe forget my little lessons that I'm trying to remind myself. But I was reading something about how it's it, you treat it like a democracy as opposed to a dictatorship. You don't need 100% of the votes to go in your way. You just need 51%. As long as 51% of the things you're doing are good, then overall you're moving forward. 
What was harder to do, give up drinking or change your diet? Uh, diet. Because drinking was reversing 12 years of bad habits. Diet was reversing 34 years. Um, and also, unlike drinking, I can go zero. I can go cold, cold turkey with booze. I go zero and I can survive. With food, you can't do that. Like, I joke in the show. The car- <laughs> in the current- well, it's not a sustainable model. No. No. You can do it temporarily. But you, they, I'm doing FebFast. It's a twist. Uh- <laughs> I talk about in the show, like, even salad is like a gateway drug when it comes to food addiction. I'm, I'm doing, I'm going to die July. <laughs> I swear I don't eat for all of July. Sorry, man. I'm yeah. stealing that for the show. <laughs> yeah, it's all yours. Cheat, it's not cheat, like I can cheat, use it. Cheat days. Go, come and check it out. <laughs> Die July. Fuck yes. <laughs> no, because it is, it, is, um, it is, I have a strong connection with food and love and, and the bad habits. The comfort seeking aspect of uh, overeating for me is still very strong. And I think the hardest part of what all of that has been for me is, um, remembering that it takes time to change. For me, with the booze, I was able to do it because going back to the pain, the pain of sobriety sucks. I hate it. I was in Adelaide Fringe uh, over the weekend, and it's the, one of the places I love to drink. The Fringe is really fun, and I wanted to, like, and I was hanging out in the garden of Anatolid Lights, and I'm like, oh, this is where I used to get drunk. This is so sad that I can't join them. But that pain is nowhere near as bad as the pain of, I know the end of this story if I did have a couple of drinks. That pain is way worse for me. So it keeps me on track. With food, it's harder because the gap between giving into the indulgence or the excessive eating and the lack of exercise, the, 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 the drawback is happening a few months down the track. It's not immediate. So you don't feel the pain instantly. So for me, giving up this idea of binge eating. So not about enjoying myself. There's a difference between, and I hope people get the difference that I'm trying to say. It's not about not enjoying chocolate and fried chicken, which I still do. It's about the way I was going about it. It was like five times a day, no matter, without any consciousness of what's going into my system. That is what I'm trying to fix. I mean, it's not about, you know, starving myself. And in fact, if anyone follows me on, on my podcast that I do about it, 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 people get annoyed with how good my cheat days are because they say you shouldn't be able to lose weight by still having, you know, two pastas in the one sitting or whatever. But I'm like, no, I just, and again, even that, I just know it's a temporary solution because I'm still trying to undo 25 years of bad eating. So this is a little bit of like, it's almost like a methadone, like a drip drip version of my, you know, habit that I just give myself a little room to wiggle. Yeah. So explain to me, and I think you have mostly, but I'm, I, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about it, which is because uh, the, the podcast, by the way, is called Fitbet. It's an excellent podcast. Thanks, I do man. listen. And, um, Got a little shout out the other day, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. noticed. Adam Richard. <laughs> yeah. Didn't think I'd contact you guys immediately. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that was actually a really amazing podcast, that, the one that you did with Adam, because like Adam is one of my lifelong friends and, you know, one of the first people I met when I started mm. doing comedy. And we once had lunch together 200 days in a row. Right. Uh, is that exactly a stat? 200 days in yeah, a row? Yeah, 200 days in a row. Well, we got to a certain point where... It, it had been a lot of days and then we decided, well, we, now we've just got to right, keep okay. going for as many of, like often our version of lunch would like start at sort of 11 a.m. and go yeah. through to about yeah. six o'clock too as well, you know, but um, we, uh, I, I, I'm interested in the idea because your approach to the diet has been that you diet, you know, say six days a week and you have a cheat day, yeah. right? And 
you're able to do that with food and sort of keep it going at, at mm. the moment. But that wasn't something that you can see yourself doing with alcohol. You couldn't, you know, be a person who, you know, didn't drink six days a week, but was able to go out on a Saturday night and have a yeah. few drinks. That's not something that you see that you could do. No, because of the negative consequence. The negative consequence of one night of uh, drinking is far worse than the negative consequence of one night of binge eating. So it's the, it just comes down to that pain factor. Which one causes me more pain? Uh, booze, it's immediate, and it's it's this. It just it it it's not just about that one night. It comes with these memories of all the other fuck shit I did. So being able to acknowledge to myself, the hardest thing to do is taking responsibility, but not suffering that shame. You can take responsibility for being overeating, being a pisshead, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, things that I regret, but not wallowing in that shit and thinking you're a piece of shit over and over again. Because that's the narrative. Is that it, it also about, I mean, and I'm, I'm just guessing, but I, I imagine that when you're eating, mm. the only damage you're really doing to you is to yourself, right? Whereas ah, the drinking, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, talking yeah, about, yeah. like I said, this to this person, or yes. I did this and it hurt somebody else. Yes. Whereas like the eating, it's not yeah. like you were like, oh, I had a whole bucket of chicken and then I told all my friends though. <laughs> They're all dickheads. <laughs> that has happened though. <laughs> yeah, this kept stick in one hand, yeah. and, you're like, and I'll tell you something. <laughs> Just holding court <laughs> with the kebab in my hand. <laughs> um, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think it is. It is an element of that. It's also like just the the. Shame is an interesting thing for me that I'm trying to understand because I think some shame has helped me push forward, but that over shame is what undid me in you know November 2007, just letting all of it spiral me to the point where I didn't... The, the, the amount of sort of uh, my sense of humor of self-deprecation was so good, like I became so good at it that it was almost I started believing the narrative that I am a piece of shit unworthy of love and respect, which is why... I didn't treat my body well with food going, well, why should I treat myself? Well, I just eat whatever the fuck I want. Cause I don't deserve to treat my body well. And that breaking that cycle is being the key factor. So now I'll still, man, if anyone, you can easily catch me out once in a while. I'll be at a supermarket, literally just staring at the chips aisle. Because <laughs> and well, deal. They keep inventing new flavors. Oh man, it's and, and you've got to try the new flavors. Hundred percent. And you know this as someone who you know with Gruen, you know the teams that are behind making me act like. And I used to think that I'm weak. Whereas I've realized, no, 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 what's happening now is a whole bunch of marketing people behind you. But also what's acting at that point in the moment where I want to give in to my craving is a childhood regression where somewhere down the line, I associate a love and food as the same thing. So in that moment, I genuinely ask myself now, hey, do you really want these chips or do you just need a hug? And just as breaking it down as simply as that going, oh, fuck, I think I need a hug. And then just being able to walk away. And sometimes it's the chips. Yeah, that's it. And what it is, I'll give myself the chips. So I'm learning how to navigate those impulses and figure out which ones are because I'm feeling anxious about the comedy festival starting. Am I feeling like, you know, I, uh, you know, whatever it is that I'm going through? Or is it actually, you know what, I just want some chips. Oh, cool. Have it. Yeah. Well, then yesterday when I had my third serving of chips, <laughs> I, re I really just needed a hug. hug. I didn't need to go. I didn't need to pop in to chips and get that big bag of chips. I needed to go and find the guy in the mall with the free hug sign and give him a hug and go home. That's what I... <laughs> That's what I actually know. Are you hungry or do you need a hug? That's it's what it not just the hug, though. It's like, it's it, like as you said, uh, you know, marketers, 
advertisers mm. who've marketed, tested these ideas and colors and shapes and whatever to trigger these evolutionary responses in your mm. brain that your body wants sugar and fat to survive. And yeah. despite the fact that we now have evolved into a lifestyle where sugar and fat aren't as necessary to day-to-day survival, our, right. our brain can still be triggered in this way. Yeah. So you've yeah, got so many triggers going on. Correct. The that, three big ones are fat, salt, and sugar. Salt was there to retain more water when there was not enough water around. Fat's there to keep you warm. And sugar, I, I think it's something to do with berries, something to do with the idea that if it's sweet, then it's not poisonous. Mm-hmm. So we've been evolved to want these three things. And those are the very three things that I fucking love. <laughs> <laughs> and I give myself that moment every Saturday. <laughs> but what what I guess for me was, was a, what I want to get to about that shame idea was that that I had to clip the shame spiral at that point where I go, hey, just because you want chips right now doesn't make you a piece of shit who's unworthy of love and respect. This is just some other thing. I, I kind of describe it as a mate that you had in high school who was always protecting you because by, by being violent. Like so if someone's bullying you, he'll come in and jump in and push the bully aside and you know punch them or whatever. And you appreciate it. And you said, hey, thanks, man. And that person now thinks, okay, I'll protect you when I need you. But now we're in our 30s and he still wants to keep fighting. I'm like, no, 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 no. We don't need to do that anymore. We can talk. We're adults now. And so rather than getting angry at this mate, because he's still there in my best interest, I'm a bit more kinder to that voice saying, hey, I know what you're doing. I appreciate what you're trying to do here, but just have a seat. Let's just watch the footy. Come on, relax. So having to almost talk to myself like a bit of a weirdo sometimes at the supermarket going, hey, man, what's going on here? Is this actual uh, cravings or do you just do you just need a hug? Um, I love that, by the way. Talk to me about the, the nature of self-deprecating humor because mm. – um, obviously Hannah Gadsby. I was going to say, um, just watching Nanette. Uh, did, yeah, <laughs> did a show Nanette. And yeah. uh, I will now just put the disclaimer in the episode so that I don't have to answer the tweets and Facebook. Yes, I am working on Hannah for the podcast. She was going ah! to do, do a live one a couple of years ago. It didn't work out because Nanette became such a huge success that well, she was yeah. in New York and she had to cancel. So I did that one with Ronnie. Uh, then we were going to do another one in LA. Just the dates of that didn't work out. Uh, we were going to do one comedy festival this year, but she's got a new show now and she's yeah. concentrating on that. So we're trying to find a date around when her book comes yeah. out mid-year. Anyway, there you go. It, don't isn't don't it funny? Facebook me. Don't tweet me. I'm trying. <laughs> isn't it funny how many <laughs> listeners think you can just snap your fingers and get it sorted? Surely no one else is busy. They don't have other things going on. Just get them on the pod. Talk for an hour. Uh, but we yeah, we both want to do it. It is happening. But um, um, uh, so the, the nature of self-deprecating mm. humor was, you know, obviously a, a big theme in her show about the idea that, you know, no more, mm. you know, that it was hurtful to her, that it mm. was reframing her story. She was using it as this protection. Um, how much did you use self-deprecating humor mm. as a protect, as an ingratiator, as a protector? I remember having a conversation with you very early on and you know you were doing the little dum dum uh you know club podcast which mm. is a great podcast yeah. and it, but it's loose and yeah. dark yeah. and completely politically incorrect and all right. these sort of things and it's in a in a in a self-aware way which makes it yeah. a little bit more tolerable because it's not like it's happening without the other person's permission and it's not it's it's mean but it's it's a welcomed mean. It's like it's almost like a little catharsis of just going like yelling into a wall and then going, We can't behave like that in real life. <laughs> right. But but you know, but at the same time people are still finding your weaknesses and exploiting them and making right. fun of them right. and the joke becomes around the things that, you know, are probably the inside you yeah. the things that you're like, I mean, you know, yes, I'm from another country. Yes, I'm overweight. Yeah. And these are the things that are being, now, was that an inclusive feeling or did sometimes that cross over into being a feeling of going, I know that this is 
them saying you're yeah. one of us, but at the yeah. same time, this stuff is hurtful. To um, me. I don't. I genuinely don't think it was ever consciously felt hurtful. Maybe subconsciously, it might have been affecting me more than I realized. But to date, I still always looked at that experience, that 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 relationship, in a positive way. To the point that now. Uh, with someone like Carl, like the, I just realized he's now struggling to find things to make fun of me about. Oh, no. I'm like, my life must be going really well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's a way of reframing for me to go, well, if this is all he can pick on now, that means, fuck, I must be doing all right. Whether it was initially about an open, being an open micer, whether it's about drinking or weight, I'm like, fuck, he's struggling. <laughs> it's my litmus test to how well things are going for me. <laughs> So you can use it again, like you know, in in a way that can service you. And for me, um, the, that that stuff didn't really bother me as much as um, the stand-up side. Stand-up was my chance to talk about myself, mm. and I was choosing to hurt myself over and over, and then getting rewarded for that. And I remember it was 2016. My show was all about my weight issues. Even the poster was me in a pool without my shirt. I had think I had a lot to do with the fact that it was rebelling against the idea of me as a child. I was to be quite ashamed about my body. I used to go swimming with the t-shirt on, even though that made things worse. It just sort of, but just just being able to then fast forward twenty years later, whatever it is, to go, fuck you, younger Dill, you're fine. You can show your body, and in fact, sell tickets off the back of it. You know, I, I celebrated that idea of it. But then it hit me, my God, if I get thin overnight. I lose 90%, 95% of my material. And given how much I love comedy, I knew, I, did not want, wanted, I didn't want to be a bad comedian. So that was when I drew the line in the sand and I did two shows in a row which had no fat jokes. And as much as there was the dumb dumb stuff and all that, that was fine. That was more like a team thing. This, As a solo act, I took away all the fat jokes. And, you know, surprise, surprise, it started, <laughs> it started falling off because I stopped rewarding that indulging behavior. Again, I, I need to make sure that I'm putting that across, which is not about enjoying and eating whatever you feel like i was just doing it to such an extent that i was not happy that's all it comes down to i it got beyond the point of me enjoying the food because i actually wasn't even enjoying the food anymore because it was just a quick comfort and then i feel regret about eating that shit and then i feel that regret the only way i can comfort myself with more food and that spiral continues so what i do now is i clip the spiral by going oh eat it but enjoy the fuck out of it and then figure out if you want some more if you do, go again, fuck it. And then, you know, just allowing myself those little victories along the way. Because I think for me, I, I think I've become really good at reframing things. And uh, if there is, um, if, if talent is something that you have that is like inherent, like something that's like comes naturally to you, I think my only true talent is gratitude. Like, I think I can get to a point of gratitude quicker than most people can. Even in my worst moments, there is this thing that kicks in my brain that helps me reframe. Fuck, how good is this? Like, so a couple of months ago, I was going through really kind of a, a you know, a personal issue. And I really needed, like, some help. And my, my therapist, I couldn't book an appointment. So my brother was there. And I spoke to my brother. And, you know, he just dropped everything, just, you know, was on the phone to me for an hour and a half, you know, next day, spoke to me again, like just really talked me through it. And as horrible as I was feeling, the first thing that came to my mind was, going, fuck, how good is it that you have a relationship with your brother, uh, a dude who's willing to drop whatever else he's got going on just to be there for you? That's amazing. And that, that little thought pulled me out of it. And so for me, realizing that's what my strength is that is what my you know i'm even arrogant as far as to say it's like kind of my superpower being able to take all this shit that i've done every fuck up every 
bad call and somehow find a way to not dismiss it as well. The other thing I'm not doing, it's not gratitude and saying, I'm cool, I'm unfaceable. You acknowledge that you fucked up and you can still learn from it. And that sense of gratitude feed has fed into every aspect of my life, which is now even with my physical self, which is something I never did. I never had gratitude for the fact that, fuck, dude, you can walk. That's not a privilege that some people have. You have eyes that work. You have a hand. Like, you know, I literally would sometimes back in the day when I was, before it became natural to me when I had to work on it, I, I, I would write out a list of things that I'm grateful for. And the first one on the list was you have a hand that works that you can write this list out and then work your way down from there. And so now that bit of thinking comes a bit more naturally to me. So as soon as I start spiraling out about something, it'll kick in going, fuck, there it is, you know? Um, <laughs> um, on the weekend, I was in Adelaide and my first show, I only did two shows in Adelaide and uh, the first show was like, for anyone who came there and watched it, thank you, you're great, you're awesome, you're really great and it was a, one of the best, you know, you were a lovely crowd but I personally know I didn't show up as well as I could have been. I know that show is better and I could have done a better job. I was very fumbly. It had been a while since I'd done the show and I was very unhappy with my performance. Um, but that also was the night that, 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 you know, my producers were there, the same producers as you. And I was like, fuck, did they have to see that one? Was that the one that they're now thinking, fuck, Melbourne starts in a couple of weeks. I can't believe this is what his show is. That thought starts kicking in. And then just quickly my brain went, fuck, how cool is it that the same people who produce Will and Husey and Nanette are in your show? <laughs> if you told me 10 years ago that you will be doing a show where you're, you know, failing, quote unquote, in front of the people that produce, uh, you know, the guys who perform at the Glass House, fuck, I'd love that. <laughs> you know, and so having that thought kick in made me go, well, yeah, you need to be better tomorrow, but don't beat yourself up over the head just because they saw you that time. That's a kind of a cool moment, the fact that they're even there to watch you. And that helps me push forward without letting, like, it's not that I'm ignoring the failure in that moment. I'm taking it, but I'm not taking the, the yucky feeling that used to sit with me for days and days. So <clears throat> the weight... <sighs> Uh, and your identity, how have you felt that your identity has changed without the weight? Like, have you noticed like that there's actually been a change in how you feel about yourself, how you present yourself? Or do you feel that you are just pretty much the same guy who just now doesn't weigh as much? No, no, it's a completely different person uh, to myself because I am – proving to myself that I'm not the version I told myself I was for the last 30 years. The version that wasn't someone, uh, was a person who hated exercising and diet because that short-term pain was too painful for me to give into. Whereas now I'm like, I oh, know you actually can take more than you can, you realized. And it's, again, I'm very careful about where things are at for me in terms of the trajectory of my weight loss. So to give you a very clear example, between, so 2018 uh, is when I started to lose weight. Uh, it was 20, uh, 31st of December uh, 2007. I was trying to put a shirt on for New Year's Eve and the shirt wasn't buttoning up. And this was a shirt I was we wearing three weeks ago, fine. And all of a sudden I was like, fuck, what's happening? So 1st of Jan uh, is when I decided to draw a line in the sand and try and fix myself. And over the year, there was a point where I had lost 35 kilos. But from 1st of Jan to 1st of Jan, the amount was 30 because I'd put on five somewhere in between. And my brain, rather than going, hey, you've lost 30 kilos in a year, it's saying, hey, you put on five. Because that's, I linked my sense of self-worth to the trajectory I was on, rather than, 
how well I was moving or how good I feel. So this comes back to that sense of identity going, I don't want to be the guy who loses weight. I'm not sure what the guy I want to be is, but I think putting that sense of self out to me where, oh, isn't he a, isn't he a success because he's lost weight? And my opening joke in the show, this current cheat day show that I'm doing, is when I say, okay, so at this point I've lost 30 kilos and people clap. I'm like, no, no, don't clap because, you know, 30 kilos is a lot, but I put it there. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I am getting rewarded for fixing a problem that I created. I'm a fireman who's put out a fire that he started and now getting a medal for that heroism. Which is quite common, by the way, I believe. <laughs> so. Very good example. Might be a couple of firemen shifting uncomfortably in the audience. <laughs> Something to chat to your therapist about, boys. <laughs> just can't stop <laughs> but I love the medal so much yeah, exactly <laughs> I just and need a hug <laughs> actually what I really need is a hug not hot chips they just need hot <laughs> chip firewood <laughs> um, but, but it is that thing to be careful about don't don't put so much sense of self into even this like this even shouldn't be the thing like I'm trying to strip away as much as I can as to what I consider what is cool about me and you know if I well, Could the idea you... of your identity being connected to how much weight you have on you. Yes. I assume you don't want to replace that with your identity being connected to how much weight you've lost. Correct. Exactly. That's a better way that I could have ever framed it. Exactly that. So then it's a question of, well, what do I want to connect my sense of self with? And right. I think what I'm trying is to remind myself that what you're good at is gratitude. Maybe work on that. You you probably will never be like, I was... What does that mean though? Because you've replaced two pretty big things. Like the other thing about the two things you're talking about is mm. they're both quite time consuming, you know, I mean, eating a lot and drinking a lot, take up a fair amount of your time and energy, right? Mm -hmm. And even in a recovery sense and those sort of things. So how have you actually just replaced those things in your life? Where has your energy gone into that used to go into those things? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when I quit drinking, it went into ice cream. So that went straight (laughs) straight away into that because it was just replacing one compulsion with the other. Then there's the, you know, once I try to get rid of the food stuff, that compulsive behavior still exists and there's that energy still there. Um, um, You know, you know, Mickey D from Adelaide, who's just started, you know, he used to be a big partier and he's now doing marathon after marathon. And so it's the same compulsive behavior. And that's not what I want to do. I do like running. I love it. And And I think what I put my sense of self-worth, I guess, or whatever, is into seeing the, the, the positive steps that I'm able to take from a negative situation. That is what I want to be proud of. If I could look back and say, what is the thing that you're most proud about your life so far? Is that when shit got ugly, you, you know, it hurt, it hurt and undid you for maybe weeks, months sometimes, but you still pushed forward and found a way to use it to get you ahead. That is what I will try and remind myself that even if I, in a year's time, I've put all the weight on and, you know, whatever reason, things aren't, because I'm, like I said, I'm undoing 25 years worth of thinking. It's not going to happen overnight, but it might lose the battle midway next year and something, you know, I could, you know, get hit by a car and not be able to, you know, go for my runs. And all of a sudden I'm still like suppressing that pain of the not being able to run by eating more food. So I might put weight on, but what I will know is that I, at some point will find a way to use that to do something good. So I haven't asked you officially if you have a philosophy, but it feels like we've talked about a lot of things anyway. <laughs> was there anything other than what we've spoken about that you would have said when I asked you that question? Um, I've thought about that as well. That's a harder one to answer because I felt like my, and as everyone in the world is that you keep changing what you thought was true and real about life. You know what I mean? 
And I think the one phrase that comes closest to like capturing that is that phrase, this too shall pass. That I think it's a Buddhist philosophy. And in fact, my entire show was based on that phrase last. Last year's show was based on that idea because I was dealing with this sense of chaos and I'm trying to figure out what the hell does any of it mean? And um, that idea that this too shall pass, whether it's good or bad, it's all temporary. So if you're going through something bad, the mere fact that I can remind myself, hey, this is temporary and it'll this too shall pass means that it hurts less. It's not that it goes away, but you know there's a little bit of breathing space. It's not as suffocating as it it can be. It might not be overnight, it might be in a year's time, but it will pass. And then the same thing with with positives is knowing that something positive will pass too means you try and I try and appreciate it while it's there. Like just want to hang on to it. Not not in a not in an attachment kind of way where I don't want to let go of it. Just letting it sit. Like I got to do the gala last year, one of the the, the All Stars gala thing. In fact the first time I did is when I opened for you. Remember the uh, when you were hosting and then you asked me to do the warm up, which was incredible. And it was so funny because they asked me what I wanted to do as a set because you got to submit the set. And I was like, oh, I actually practiced it last year. So here is it ready to go. Because <laughs> I kind of had that sense going, maybe I might get it next year. So if I was to do the actual gala, what's the set I would do? So, And I remember the one goal I gave myself for the gala last year, the, the show, all-star show, was just remember this moment. Because if this is your only shot, I don't want to walk off stage going, fuck, it was a blow. It all happened quickly. It didn't matter how many laughs or whatever I got. Because I'm like, I know the material works. I know I've done the hard work. I just didn't want to let myself down by not taking it in. And and it the thing I'm most proud about that set is when you wa- see when I watch back the video, you see just this goofy face of mine looking and literally taking in the balcony, taking in how big this moment is. And I'm like, well done, buddy. You you that was your one goal and you've nailed it. Like that and that that I remember exactly how it felt when uh, Edo announced my name. I know exactly what it felt like when I waved to the crowd and said goodbye. Like so even if I don't get it again this year, it doesn't matter to me as much because I know that one chance I got, I really took it in. And that's where that concept of this too shall pass comes in for me, which is knowing that everything is trans- uh, you know, temporary and will change. So try and enjoy it as much as you can while it's there. It's it's funny that you mentioned uh, the night where you did the warm-up uh, spot for me because that was when I hosted the gala. Because that was the last time I did the gala. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I, I might not, I don't, like, I'm not saying again, like you're saying about the weight, I'm not saying that I will never do the gala again, but I had done it 18 or 19 years in a row at that point. And, uh, I had been thinking a lot about, you know, how you, one of the things that I consider at the point in my career is like, you know, how do you give back to the industry mm. that has given so much to you? And part of it is making spaces for other people, right? That's one of the things you've got to consider because it's very easy to, you know, be a promoter of other people, but like, it's much harder to go, I'm going to give up my space in this thing so that somebody else can have an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what happens is because, you know, I'm a well-known act at the festival and whatever, I get asked to do the gala every year or the all-star show. Like, you know, one one of the two big galas that they have at the start, they'll find a slot for me, you know, Mm. to do that. And so they're never going to stop asking. Right. It's up to me to at some stage say no. Yeah. And the reason that I'm saying no is that I believe if I say no, there's now a spot there that they can, like, I don't get to say who that spot goes to. Sure. But, but you, at create least a there's space. A, you create a space that they will hopefully then 
pass down the line and somebody else gets an opportunity, yeah, right? Yeah, replace Will with Dill. Like, yeah. just, <laughs> just change the first yeah, letter. I said, and yeah, could you play? It was easy on the run, Shay. <laughs> no, but, but I remember there, having this chat with you last year when you told me that we were doing the, the shoot for the Herald Sun. And I thought about it afterwards and I was thinking, oh, cool. Well, like, what an awesome gesture and which is appreciated by someone who was getting to do their first spot. We don't know if it's exactly one for one, but it could have been, right? We could have been very much that. But then I also thought that's still a little unfair for you, though, because you, of anyone, would know how hard it is to stay relevant in this business. So the fact that you're still wanted 18, 19 years later is a testament to the effort, the effort that you've put into your career and the opportunities that were given to you and you've used it correctly because there's enough of names of people who would have been great 10 years ago but can't get a, you know, a spot at the expert now. Do you know oh, what I mean? So the I, fact I, but that- also, by the way, you've got to understand that this is – a gesture that in many ways cost me nothing. Like, let's be, com- right, if okay. we're being completely honest about this, sure, 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 sure. like, it's not like suddenly, you know, Take no one's going to come and see my comedy <laughs> festival show, you know, like I'm in a position where, sure. you know, in a, it doesn't really hurt me too much for this to, sure. to happen, you know, in the way that it might benefit somebody else who, you know, people see them on the TV okay. for the first yeah. time and go and see their show. But the other thing is, I, I guess the reason I bring it up is less about going, oh, you're good on me for doing what yeah, I yeah, was yeah. doing was to talk about, that I get more pleasure out of the knowledge that I have done that than I was getting out of right. doing the gala. Right, right. And that's that I know to be 100% true. Right. Like, you know, I – and that maybe is a problem. Like, maybe that goes to the idea of like what I was talking about before of not being able to, you know, enjoy the great right. moments in my life. Maybe it's indicative of that to a certain degree. But I certainly know in my head the feeling of providing that opportunity for somebody else is at least at the moment in my life yes. giving me more joy than, than the, the idea actual of actually going and doing that event myself. That's now, fascinating you say – sorry, go. No, go. Uh, is that because I'm, a book I'm reading at the moment is called uh, Solve for Happy, which is a book by a guy called Mo Godat, who uh, is this engineer who worked for Google or whatever, and he thinks everything in mathematics. And he tried to find a equation for happiness. And he felt like he found it, and he was using it, and it worked well for him. And then um, this is not giving away the book or anything, but he, he the, the the start of the book he talks about his twenty one year old son dying from a uh, medical uh, like a error that happened, uh, which could have been prevented. It was a human error, and his son is taken away from him. And then he tried to figure out, well, does this happiness equation still hold up? And it sort of did, and that's why he decided to write the book. And he wrote it in like seventeen days. So I'm only like very early stages of the book, but the happiness equation, which I'm sure he'll break down further. But at the point of where I'm at is where he says, your happiness is equal to or greater than your perception of the events in your life less than your expectation of those events. So if you expected something to be great and you show up and turns out it's not as good as you hoped, it's not as you're feeling unhappy. Whereas if your your perception of what something was going to be was bad and turns out you're, you know it was actually better, you're going to be happier. The thing I liked about the equation is both those um, constants in those two are things that are in your control. It is your perception of an event minus your expectation. They both come back to you. So your perception of what you might have gotten from the gala at doing that spot wasn't as great as, or maybe your expectation as well, isn't as good as that feeling knowing that, hey, you know what? Someone who would really cherish this point will get that moment. So in order to reframe your situation, where you're at, where you're, whether you're wondering where am I getting, where's, where's this joy that you know should be getting from performing to 2,000 people is gone, it might be it comes down to that perception and expectation thing. What is 
uh, a perception of you? What, what is there a perception about you? A thing that people think about you that doesn't ring true to you? Uh, I reckon it is that I'm happy all the time. <laughs> I think because of that version of me that is, I would say 85% true. Like there's a version of me that is always positive and always gra- grateful and all those things we've just discussed. But there are those moments that those come undone and I'm, you know, starting to, you know, spiral out, which is why I'm very passionate about letting people know the benefits I've had from mental health, because I've kind of, w- I always think about going, what are the things I wish I heard if I had, you know, if I was listening to these podcasts when I was, you know, as an accountant or whatever, what are the things I wish that I heard my um, people that I looked up to say? And the, these are the types of things. Even with my show, each year I go, if I was in the crowd watching the show, what are the things that I wanted to share with, you know, that version of Dill? And I think the perception, misperception is that I'm always positive, but it's not. It takes a lot of work and I have to, I'm good at bouncing back. But there's very real dark things. And because I don't publicly, because I guess even with in terms of the drinking stuff and, you know, uh, it, 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 as soon as I stopped drinking, things just took off for me. It felt like I didn't really have any, you know, drawbacks from, from that moment in my life. But the truth is, like, behind the scenes, there was just so many fucking nights of just crying into my pillow and like, which I, you know, I, it's hard to Instagram story that, you know, <laughs> like it's much easier to just, you know, take a photo of the a nice pasta that I'm having and post that online rather than actually, you know, showing people how, um, how sad I can get. Well, and also like, I, cause I'm a person who I've been thinking about this a lot recently, what you're talking about. And it's why I'm at least trying to, you know, hint at, yeah, I, I don't want to, when I talk to people about the struggles I'm having with my show or the fact that like my life isn't how I want it to be at the moment, mm. I don't want it to ever be that sort of, you know, I don't, I, I don't do that for other people's sympathy. Mm. I, I, I don't feel yeah. comfortable with that sort of performative thing where you say this bad thing happened and then people kind of feel like they need to respond to that. I'm more sharing it to show, you know, sometimes people's lives look like they're really yeah. good. Yeah. Sometimes, even when your life looks like it's really good, people can have all these other things going on. Right. You know, just so that people don't feel like... They're alone. They're, yeah. And feel like shit that they're going through those yeah. things and it feels like everybody else has got their shit together. And I think that's clearly one of my... from the outside, it looks like I've got my shit together. Right. Well, I'm going to say 100%. I, I, at the moment, I do not have my shit together. Yeah. And I'm struggling with a whole bunch of different things. And I don't want to go into them and I don't want to right. particularly you know, post about them or talk about them, but right. I want people to be able to know that that I'm terrified about my show, right. that I'm terrified about letting people down, that I my life is a bit of a mess and I have I'm, there's a whole bunch of things that I am working on and right. a whole bunch of things that I'm failing at just so that people know and that, is probably one of that the that is the case. Powerful things you can do is give that that idea that this is not a, a, um, a struggle that someone who's listening right now is going through by themselves. The mere fact that, you know, even... Uh, quote unquote successful comedian from all metrics of what a success we think is can have these moments is like oh fuck all right cool all right all right so I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a piece of shit just because I'm feeling like this even that guy who seems to have everything together is feeling like that and a key thing that you just said is at this moment which is what I like I guess for why we start with the podcast which is at this moment this is what it is it might not and just remembering that it too is temporary in its own way whether it's temporary for the next three years or the next three weeks whether it's like you know. Either you get it together or not, it is still going to change at some point. Either you'll find a way to reframe it for yourself to find a way to get out of it, or it's, you know, the circumstances actually do change itself. 
But whatever it is, it is not going to last. It will too shall pass. Uh, good. It's a good slogan, apart from everything but kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, no, okay. Well, tell me this, because uh, we've got to finish up soon. Yeah, but sure. um, oh, I've got a couple of things, obviously, that I still want to ask, mm. which is, firstly, I've been asking this a little bit lately, and you don't need to have an answer to this, and it's a legitimate answer to say mm. that you wouldn't change everything, anything. But mm. is there a moment in your life that you wish you had your time over and you could do differently? That's so bizarre. You asked that literally, so the book, Soul for Happy, um, is uh, the the I was listening to it on the plane on the way to Melbourne from Adelaide just this morning, and it was about I think he called it the eraser test. That if you could erase a moment, what would you choose? And if there was a technology that said, "Hey, there were a service that can do this for you," um, you can get it done. Just pick a moment, we'll erase it. But that also means that everything that comes after goes away too. All the conversations you've had, all the lessons you've learned, all of it goes. What would you take out? And to be honest. I'm, I would say I'm lucky enough at this point in my time life to say that I'm lucky enough that I don't have that. I feel like every horrible thing that still haunts me, you know, from the time I, you know, said something mean to my little cousin to, you know, well, the gig in Adelaide, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever those regrets are, it did. I, I'm grateful enough that I'm able to use that to do something good with it. Um, Interestingly, with this author who talks about his sun dying, he goes, he wishes he could say, yeah, there's nothing. But for him, it's 100% the sun. He wish he could just get his son back. And it's nice that he admitted it because he's saying, oh, this is a fucking great way to live. And it's all happy. He goes, yeah, but I fucking miss my son. Yeah. You know? So I'm lucky enough to not have that moment that, that I wish I could absolutely change. Even my worst moment, I still know that it became something good out of it. You talked about being raised uh, in a Muslim household. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not, not to turn off any uh, Comics Lounge listeners who've made it this far. But, uh, <laughs> no, I feel bad. Comics uh, Lounge is my home. What is home it? Home no, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a good venue. And, uh, no, it, it's where I, I, just, tip, I just yeah, understand the, the, like, it, the point you were making. Yeah. was like, you know. I was um, a third, three, year, three years into comedy. What yes. am I doing? And I'll tell you the bit that I... Uh, yeah. Sorry, finish I'm sure question. You could, firstly, I'm sure you could make that bit fly at the Comics Lounge it, now. It is my opening now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it was almost not, like that. I don't know whether you had the same thing. When you have a moment of die, like you're like, fuck, I want to prove you wrong yeah. and find a way to get there. Like something, I don't fuck, I'm derailing your question. But no, that's right. um, when I first met you was when in 2012 when you were doing gig, gigs at the Comics Lounge. Oh, yeah. And um, I think it was my second year of comedy. And um, it's actually still today when I get asked what's your one of your co coolest moments in comedy, I always use this as an example because I don't know if you remember, but I had bought tickets to watch that show. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then turns out I'd missed a voicemail from uh, from uh, your management, um, who's now my management at the time, to say, do you want to do opening? And I'd be like, oh, fuck, I missed the voicemail. I was freaking out. It turns out it was all good. And I managed to do, I think, like uh, the opening spot. And that moment I always hold dear because it's something that I was willing to pay money to watch and all of a sudden I'm getting paid to do it. Like, that's crazy cool for me. But that day you and I remember the, we had five shows in a row and I think the first night I did something like a type of comedy that I thought was what suited the Comics Lounge. And then I think I was sort of like hovering around trying to find if you had any feedback. I wasn't sure how to approach it because I know you've had to worry about your own set. And I sort of managed to ask you and you said, well, okay, if you want genuine feedback, don't try to meet the audience, just find a way to make your truth funny to them. And that's something I've tried to remember as much as I can, that I don't need to make my set clubby. I don't need to do clubbier material for the Comics Lounge bigger crowds. I can make what I have and my version of truth as clubby as possible. 
to match that energy. It doesn't have to work the other way. I don't need to talk about, you know, wanking or whatever the fuck that bit was just because I thought, oh, it's a crass crowd and I need mm. to meet them. It's like, no, no, I have my truth about growing up in a Muslim family that can be a club-heavy punchline set, you know? Yeah. Uh, my theory on that stuff is always I'd never add a joke. Like, I'd never do a joke at a club that I wouldn't do everywhere else just because it was that sort of club. I will say, to be honest, occasionally I'll drop a joke that, you know, as in right. like there might be... You right. know, one or two bits where you're just like, you know what, this isn't going to fly here. Yeah, like, this, this is will, the Gold Coast. This will fly, <laughs> yeah, fly in a the theatre. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that'll come as a surprise to you as well. Uh, in, in my show about being arrested, I was up in Townsville and there's just one line about, you know, like Briggs, the rapper, you know, uh, mm. messaging me, you know, when yep. I got arrested and there's a line about, you know, white men in incarceration versus Indigenous people. Then I got this little murmur in Townsville, and I was like, "Oh, that's right, we're in Townsville." Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but um, good crowd. They were they were into it. It wasn't like the whole crowd, but sure. it was just like it was just one of those things where I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, right." Um, so, uh, but religion was what I was I wanted mm. to talk to you about. Um, do you have any religion in your life now? Are you a person who has some sort of overall belief about you know the nature or meaning of life? Um, so. No is the answer. I would say I'm classified as an atheist, but it's it's a really uncomfortable one for me to admit to because my my mom is Muslim, my dad is Buddhist, and they sent me to a Catholic school. So I had three of these big kind of in Sri Lanka in particular with these mm. the three big religions, and um, I think I ended up an atheist because I listened to all three. Because I went, hang on, one of you is wrong at a minimum, at a bare minimum, <laughs> one of you is wrong, <laughs> yeah. but all three of you are yeah. so sure that you're right. So that can't exist. That is, <laughs> that is a genuinely, genuinely mathematical improbability. So that means none of you are right. <laughs> you know, it means oh, the, the prob- high probability is that none of you are right. And it's interesting with Buddhism. Uh, well, that's that. I don't know who originally had the thought, but it's that line of everyone's an atheist. Yeah. Like even religious people are yeah. atheists, as in they don't believe in all the other religions. Yeah, it's just one less God that I yeah. uh, you I believe in. Oh, mm-hmm. well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, and also I think that agnostic atheist thing I always find interesting because I think it's two different questions I've heard someone describe. Because you know, if you're agnostic, you're asking what do you think as opposed to what do you believe? Or what do you know versus what do you believe? Because ag- we're all agnostic because none of us know. None of us actually know. We can believe and that makes you a believer or an atheist, but uh, technically we're all agnostic. But... Um, I, uh, I, um, even recently I was on the project and I, um, and I made a little joke about that, the upbringing and how that, um, informed my overeating because I got to eat at so many festivals, like <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> Ramadan, you know, Vesak and saying I'm not a Buddhist. Uh, it's so incredible how my dad shared that, that, that video of me, um, to all his mates, except for his one hardcore Buddhist mate, because he didn't want, you know, him to know that his son is not a Buddhist. And then also my dad's mate who, uh, mom and dad had to elope because, you know, the, the mixed religion, they sort of essentially got married in the Maldives, um, where mom had gone to teach in the Maldives. And so dad followed her there and they got married. But Maldives is a very hardcore Muslim country. So technically dad had to convert to Islam to get married to mom, right? But he never really practiced it. Years later, so they literally had their anniversary yesterday. It was their um, 20, the 42nd anniversary yesterday. And after my dad shared that video with one of his mates in Maldives, he goes, hey, I was at your wedding, uh, you know, your, your, it was a signing, like, uh, not a wedding. You were Muslim that day. You know, I didn't know that you weren't actually Muslim. And he literally said, you know, you, it's not too late for you. You can still be forgiven. Please, you can still come back to the religion. And that's the, 
those are the moments where I fire up wow. because I'm like, you, you, that, that arrogance is something we talk about, you know, atheists being annoying because, you know, just let people be, let them be. But I find that a bit upsetting to not allow atheists to talk about that stuff purely because if you feel like, oh, live and let live, that means you haven't been oppressed by religion. You, you don't know what it's like to feel unwelcomed uh, and why it's such an arbitrary, like this, this belief system, you know, uh, if, I mean, we might as well get deep into it. So my grandma, I grew, when I grew up in the house, so dad worked overseas, continued in Maldives. My mom, uh, we grew up in mom's side of the family and there were 14 people in our house. And my brother and I were the only non-Muslims. And um, I would, you know, felt like a minority in my own house and a minority in my Catholic school as well. And grandma, you know, she's a gorgeous woman. She just, as we say, of a different time. But she, uh, she said to me when I was eight that, oh, do you know that uh, I have to go to hell uh, because I let you grow up in my house as a non-Muslim? And, you know, I was like eight years old. Hang on, she has to go to hell She has well. to go to hell. Not me, because she didn't put the effort in to try and convert me. And just, by the way, full circle, that's the bit I tried to do at the comics lounge when I was three years in. <laughs> it is a good premise, though. Like, it's definitely a good premise. <laughs> I mean, that is, a, that is, a, people at the that is a tough religion, though, when she has to go to hell because... But it, even oh, gets, it, gets, it gets slightly better because then I... It's a good way to hook people into passing it. But, I mean, this is obviously, yeah. as you can see when you look at it from the outside, yeah. these are all the rules that are put in place to make sure. sure that the next generation is hooked in. It's not enough that... You believe in yes, this. You, have to you are going to go to hell if you don't recruit the next generation of people into this religion as well. And to give context to grandma, when she was growing up in her, uh, in the, like a tiny village in India, so her side of my mom's side of the family is Indian, which I don't tell too many people about because of the cricket. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, in that village, she was one of the rare Muslims. And if she was a seven, eight, like nine-year-old invited to a birthday party, she would get invited to the non-Muslim houses. Mm. But as soon as she left, they'd mop the floors because a Muslim had walked through the house. So she's growing up thinking that's the divide, that they have to clean the floor because I'm so unclean or whatever. So when her daughter brings two non-Muslims into this house that her husband built, of course, she's not going to feel good about it. Of course. But I'm eight. I don't know any better. Mm. I'm just hearing that from grandma and it's pretty upsetting. So I go to mom and I say, oh, you know, this, this is what just grandma just said. It's pretty, uh, you know, that I, she has to go to hell because I'm not a Muslim. She, mom's like, no, no, no. My mom, who's this gorgeous four foot 11 tiny person, hugs me and says, no, no, it's fine. It's not, don't leave. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And then mom goes, I mean, it was my decision to make you non-Muslim. So it's probably me that has to go to hell. <laughs> That's not what I'm worried about. And so, funny enough, so mom, grandma being the matriarch in the family, she was the one who cooked all the food. And the one time we connected was with how much I was able to eat. So obviously that links that. So she, I get grandma's love and respect if I eat all her cooking. So that's where I know my, and that's what I discovered through therapy, is that that's where that link is. So when I overeat now, it's not necessarily that I'm trying to get some energy into my body. It's about wanting to feel like I belong in my own house. Yeah, I think so much of like, you know, I 
my because I have it's a for another time, but yeah, I have really weird issues around food, and um, I'm very snack heavy. And well, I there's think a, a lot... podcast that I recommend you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not sure I'm quite ready to, <laughs> yeah, 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 to really unpick yeah, sure, my sure. uh, yeah, my uh, weird issues that all my friends like to laugh at me about, mm. but um. A lot of it is snack related. And yeah. I think a lot of it is that sort of like I associate very good memories of my life as being you yeah. know, rewarded with snacks. Yeah. You know, I still like, you know, snacky foods for that reason. You know, I still like biscuits and yeah. jelly, jelly babies and stuff because they were the sort of things that were in my Nana's house for treats. Right. You know, like exactly. There is, there is a feeling of, you know, it's hard for me to have a cup of tea without wanting to have a right. biscuit oh, because it's the ritual as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a ritual yeah. to it. So, so for um, the, the religion, yes, then the religion. And for that, it comes back to that idea of being surrounded by that, but then having mom who does pray five times a day. She does do Ramadan, but still went. No, nah, you do your thing. It's fine. No, it doesn't. If you want to drink, that's fine. Just you know, I'm just not going to do it myself. So I kind of am kind of spoiled by seeing a version of a proper belief system that services her because without islam in her life she's not going to be as happy she needs that idea that when her sister passed away as sad as it is she gets to see her in the afterlife whereas for me and my brother it was like oh no we can just celebrate how great an auntie she was to us let's use that as our motivation to to you know process this sadness but my mom might not be able to do that necessarily and that's okay too she sounds uh, pretty amazing, though, to be able to simultaneously have that belief system for herself, but mm. allow the idea that that belief system isn't that something that her children had yeah. to have. Yeah. Was that a hard struggle for her? 100%. Or? Yeah. It would be really, because I can't explain how much it was a rebellion, like how much she had to fight against. I mean, that's how charming my dad is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's Great the, compliment to you. Yeah, dad. yeah, yeah. Gross. Yeah. Jai singer smile. But, uh, <laughs> 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 but, um, but it was a case of her having to. I mean, this is tough to talk about. Yeah, well, because and it, we don't it, need but, to. No, but it but is I, important. But she would actually get beaten up for yeah. even making eyes at because dad used to work in the area, and she would get beaten up by her brothers, who then were became my father figures. Because when I grew up in that house, they were the only two male figures, mm. and the amount of love in that house I can't describe. But that indoctrination about if you're not what we believe, you're bad. You know, I got, I saw it firsthand reverse. You know, I saw it didn't matter what we believe as long as we're good people. So for me, I have this puppy dog fucking, you know, optimistic view that everyone is capable of that. Because I saw how much grandma, what it meant to her to have a non-Muslim in her house and then still find love and, and, and genuine love for me. I was like, it's possible. So there's some way to do it. We just haven't found a way to do it. Like... The joke I attempted at the Comics Lounge was around that idea that can you imagine how much of an ego I have on me if I had a woman who thought she has to go to hell, but fuck, he's cute and lovable. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're braised to think you're so adorable and lovable, can you imagine yeah. what an asshole I am in my head? Like, yeah. going, of course, grandma is yeah. burning in hell yeah. right now because I, was, I had a great Baba Black Sheep joke, you know? <laughs> but so for me, I saw, because I, I guess I've seen people change and I, and I think they're capable of it, that it kind of then misinforms me by making think, making me think that everyone is capable of it. Maybe it was just my family that was, you know, open-minded enough to kind of break away from it. But my auntie to date, my, one of my mom's other sisters, will, you know, is in contact with my brother and will say things like, oh, I, by the way, I've been praying that you convert back to Islam. And my brother will be like, can I pray that you convert to atheism? <laughs> and peace <laughs> <or> all. <laughs> but my brother is way funnier than I am. And I mean, he has more balls than I do with saying stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's where... 
I fire up about religion is not because I don't believe that you're allowed to believe what you want, but I also know how it has hindered certain people's happiness, people who matter to me, like my mom. You know, the idea that she had to feel guilty for years because she brought two non-believers into the world. And that's where I'm upset with, you know, religion in that sense. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Sadly, I wish I believed something happened, but I think it's nothing. I think it's nothing because... Um, and that scares me, by the way. The fe- fear of death is in... I have it every day. And again, because I exist, I try and use it. So whenever I feel too lazy to call mom and dad or whatever, I'm just like, oh, fuck. If you, I just have to tip, send a reply to a text, but I'm so tired. I've done this gig. I've bombed. Whatever it is, I'm like, but fuck. If you go to bed now and they wake up and they're not around, you're going to regret this. So I'll make that effort to try. So because I don't believe I'll get to see them again. Uh, one of the descriptions is about like it's, it's like we're all at a party. Um, a really cool party. Sometimes good shit's happening, bad shit's happening. It's happening in different circles. But out of nowhere, someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and says, hey, you got to leave now. And then you leave, but the party keeps going. So the least you can do is make sure that when you leave, people don't talk shit about you after you go. Yeah. People, so, are, people are going to talk shit about you. Know, they're still going to. Regardless, because a lot of your friends are comedians. <laughs> 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 of course they're going to. To be fair, they're going to talk shit about me while I'm there. Oh, yeah, that's a good that's point. True. That's true. Right. At least with comedians, it's a little bit more upfront. But I think you, I guess maybe the idea is to have more people talk good things about you at the party yeah. than the shit thing. And because you will end like, in the party, I've done fucked up shit. And if people only saw that version of me at that party, they're going to be, what a piece mm. of shit. I can't believe he was. Who invited yeah. him? Thank, but, thank fuck he's not here anymore. Thank fuck he's not here anymore. Yeah. But then hopefully there's more people to say, fuck, I miss him. He was good fun. Well, mate, we probably need to finish up. Like, <laughs> basically because we're running out of time, not because we're running out of things that we could talk about mm. because there's uh, so many things that have come up during this that I would love to uh, you know, explore further. But you know, I reckon this has been... Uh, Man, it's been unreal. It's, thank it's you been so good. much. And, um, so tell people you've got a show. Uh, yes. That'll be much better than that one you did in Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> hey, people who came yesterday on Sunday show would give great reviews. Uh, I'm sure yeah. that the people who came to that show really loved it too. And yeah. I'm sure that you're judging yourself much more harshly in your mind than the audience yeah. themselves would have judged you. And not, not to sound, it is, it is totally that. The audience that left afterwards, I sing goodbye to them and they were really positive. It's just of that course. I know that I didn't deliver as well as I could have. And I'm sorry for that, Adelaide. But, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it's called Cheat Days. It's uh, happening at the, uh, firstly in Canberra, uh, um, I think. It's March 23rd, and then a week later, the whole of Melbourne Comedy Festival. And then, uh, where is your show on, and what time? It's 9:45 at the Victoria Hotel uh, uh, in next to Town Hall, and then Sydney Comedy Festival, March uh, May 11th and 12th. And all tickets at comedy.com.au. But also, I might say Fitbet Podcast, uh, which I do with Ben Lomas. It really is fantastic. Do you have a recommendation? Because often I say with my other podcast, Tofop. um, Mm Uh, people who listen to this podcast may not enjoy that podcast. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. And I always say, if you are going to get into it, start at the latest episodes and work your way backwards. Right. And then eventually you'll get to an era and a time where we're saying things that people shouldn't say anymore. (laughs) Just stop. Stop when you feel uncomfortable. Don't start at 2007 or whatever and go, ooh, really? (laughs) I mean, that's that's, I've heard you talk about that uh, in this particular podcast and that's a whole other issue. But yeah, let's, let's, please, let's stop. You know, retrospectively, Just, you know, talking about how bad Chandler's character in Friends is yeah. about being gay or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, we, like, we can learn there was from one the other day where people were saying that they found some John Wayne quote. Oh. And they were like, John Wayne was politically, they said this politically incorrect thing. And I was like, do we think that John Wayne 50 years ago, yeah. the guy who was the... The guy who got hunted... Em- Rhino in Hatari. The guy <laughs> like, who was the emblem of like essentially toxic masculinity right. come to life. Right. Like 
would in some way be some sort of you know inner city lefty yeah. latte drink. Yeah, he was anyway, woke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I can't believe that John Wayne John wasn't woke. woke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, but um, that. Which so, part, oh, sorry, which what I was going to say is, where do you start with Fitbit? Because because the, the idea of it is that you start this bet together, mm. you know, about the losing of the weight. So, yeah. so we have it, both 120 kilos at the start of the episode, uh, first episode, and we're the first person to get under 100 kilos gets a thousand bucks. That happened way quicker than we expected. <laughs> we tend to lose the weight a lot more quicker, and that, that, I think it's the first eight episodes where the the bet still exists, and then afterwards, it's about us navigating life trying to stay fit because losing turns out losing where it's easy staying fit has been a fucking nightmare um so we've got uh so that's probably the first eight is not not a bad way to go follow chronologically but otherwise if you just want to dip in and out we've had some incredible guests like um pete hellier was on a couple of weeks ago and he, he brought a different side to things that he admitted he never talked publicly about his weight issues and kind of it meant a lot that he was willing to use us as a forum to finally talk about it i mean i thought the hellier one in particular because you know that he doesn't like he'll he'll make a joke about it or yes. whatever, but he won't really. He hasn't spent a lot of time really delving into you know that area and his relationship with food and stuff. I found that you know, and I've known Pete for twenty years, yeah. but I found that really revealing. I felt like I right. learned something about my Made friend. Of yours. You're right. You know, yeah, from it's, listening it's to it's it. Funny so how it podcasts can do that. So that one's a good one. Uh, Freddie Flintoff, the cricketer from uh, uh, English captain, like sharing genuine honesty around depression, having bulimia, something that I'd, I had no idea he had, he was bulimic while being an elite sportsman. It's crazy. And um, he talked a lot about identity and, and having this issue around him all is wanting to want abs and then he gets abs and it's like he's depressed. Like, it's incredible. So those are, you know, have a look and see if there's any like sort of guests that you think might be interesting. Like Claire Hooper broke my brain because she didn't have any vices. <laughs> I <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean you don't like chips? Everyone loves chips. So there's there's different episodes with different vibes. And, you know, some of it, uh, uh, there's a lot of, I would say it's a lot cruder than people think. Because it's around weight loss, we think that it's going to be like a, you know, yeah. episode of uh, Biggest Loser or Weight Watchers. And it's like, no, there's a lot of. It's a comedy th- podcast. Yes, yes. It's a comedy podcast that also is around weight loss, which I actually think is one of the the great yeah things about it. That, it, you know, right. it, it remains entertaining. And along the way, you pick up these yes. sort of, you know, I, 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 I hate to say nuggets. <laughs> I'm salivating. <laughs> Jesus. And um, because I met a guy at the Rhino Room in Adelaide on Saturday who said, he said, hey, man, I'm so glad I got to meet you because because of your podcast, I lost 30 kilos. And I genuinely said, how? Like, what what, what do you mean? Like, how does this work? And he, and he sort of described it. And I'm guessing what he's saying, was trying to say was that, we don't shy away from talking about the fact that we're fat and uncomfortable with being fat, but we're also not saying we're unworthy of love and respect. I think that's the difference between the the type of fat shaming that we do on that podcast is we don't pretend like we're not boombas. Yeah. You know? We do acknowledge it, but just because you acknowledge it doesn't mean you're unworthy or a piece of shit. You can still be someone who is like, – we're just a work in progress. Like as a human – I just think of myself, I'm a constant work in progress and it might feel like it's a, you know, exhausting thing. When is it going to be fixed? But the mere fact that it'll never be fixed is in itself what makes it exciting to keep working at it. It's like a, uh, it's a video game for me, all of everything, like whether it's comedy, whether it's exercise, is that 
I'm finally enjoying playing something. And it's taking, it, like comedy is something I always think of as a video game. I'm, it's exhausting me. I'm so tired. I sometimes forget to look after myself because I've been playing this game for so long. But while I'm there, I'm having so much fun. I don't want to get the cheat codes to skip the levels. I, I want to play with this level, get all the skills I can, and then move on to the next one. And then move on and play with that level field and then move on. And I just know that it will never finish. There's no one who's ever clocked comedy. Like, you know, I mean, even people have come close to maybe being great, like, you know, Pryor or whoever, Carlin, even they still had things that they could have been better at. And that can be a, a thought that is crippling or it can be a thought going, going, fuck, we get to play forever. And that feeling is what I'm trying to bring into my exercise and diet is that it's not about, you know, looking better, which is a nice byproduct. But really, it's about the fact that I'm finally using my, this privilege of having a working body to its best potential use and tr and it'll never be perfect but knowing that i'm trying is a nice thought what a great way to end thanks very much Dill. thanks will